we are going to end season one of Taste with a bang, or should I say, a feedback screech. Seamus Kelleher is a blues guitar great out of County Galway, Salt Hill to be exact. He spent his early years worshiping Rory Gallagher, touring Ireland with the likes of Thin Lizzy. He jumped over to this side of the pond where he's been a teacher, a solo guitarist for the legendary band Blackthorn out of Philadelphia, a solo act touring all sides of the Atlantic with his acoustic blues mastery. And now he's an author with Shine a Light, which was released last year and is getting rave reviews. He also happens to be one of my closest friends. I've covered him for years in the pages of Irish Central and Irish Voice, and it's just been a joy to watch his artistry blossom. Hope you enjoyed Taste, and thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of Taste. I'm your host, Mike Farher, and there are people that say I might be the busiest man they know, but the man I'm looking at right now on the Zoom feed is the busiest man I know, and that is my very, very good friend, Seamus Kelleher. Seamus Kelleher is a blues guitarist extraordinaire. He is a lecturer. He is an author. He is a tour host. He is going to be hosting a trip to Ireland on June 9th with three days in Galway, three days in Kerry, one day in Dublin. As I mentioned, he's a blues guitarist and he has a brand new album that's just out, Shine the Light on Me Tonight. I've heard a track or two. And as usual, it is just smoking. So Seamus Kelleher, welcome to Taste. Thank you so much, Mike. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. So let's unpack everything that you've got going on because you've got quite a lot. I know, first of all, for anybody that has not seen Seamus, you don't really know Seamus Kelleher until you've seen him live. That's just a fact, right? So I know during the pandemic, like most musicians, you were kind of uh, stuck in the house. Although even in your case, you weren't stuck in the house, right? You were you were doing those Facebook Live uh, things on your porch, which were super entertaining, but your schedule is now busier than ever, right? You're booked months and months in advance up and down the East Coast and out to Kansas City for their festivals. So what's it been like for you to be back uh, on the road? And what's the audience response been? It's been fantastic, uh, Mike. This will be um, my busiest year ever, I think, in my career, um, 2022. And I think even I started back, I got an early vaccine, so I started back to work last March, um, March of 2021. And then I was all open air venues down in Florida that I was doing mainly. I found people just so happy to be out again. And um, they're very generous in every sense. And, but more importantly, they were very responsive to the music in a way that people always have been, I think, at least for me, for the most part. Um, but more so after the COVID, people were really appreciated the music and showed a lot of respect to musicians. And so I think it was a reminder how important it was for people to be able to go out and enjoy music, not just, you know, in a solo, but like with friends and with family and with big groups of people. That's how music should be enjoyed, you know. Amen. Amen. I should also mention, which I'm just super proud uh, to announce to the Taste listeners, that 
Seamus Kelleher also has a new book out, his first book, Shine a Light. And uh, it is part rock and roll memoir and part motivational book to just ensure that you are taking care of your, your mental health. And it's, um, again, it's a very unique book in that it is just brave uh, is the word I would say it. But we'll get to the, all of that in a minute. I do want to talk about the rock and roll lifestyle, though, because you actually got to tour Ireland with Thin Lizzy. And uh, what was that like? That I can imagine that was unbelievable. So talk us through what that experience was like uh, as you were playing the, the halls and clubs of, of Galway and then eventually work your way up to uh, opening for Tin Lizzy. Yeah, it was, um, it was, I was pretty young. I think I was about 17 years of age and uh, I had the band called Skull and um, we were three-piece rock band and um, we were wild. My bass player was like a mini version of Jimi Hendrix. Literally, the only difference was uh, wasn't quite as tall as Jimi Hendrix, but only by a few inches. Uh, the drummer was a wild guy that used to go around town driving at 90 miles an hour on a Hells Angel uh, motorcycle. So we had these crazy characters. So our band was like, insane it was a it was a really good little rock band and i don't know how we ended up opening for thin lizzy the first time it was um they uh the manager had reached out to us and um we had a great time with them that treated us so well at the time thin lizzy didn't have their first big hit whiskey in the jar that came a few months later but uh, even after then they had the whiskey in the jar and this you know we were playing now instead of playing to 500 people and two and a half thousand people. Then Lizzie treated us the exact same. They were wonderful. Phil Lynott was like one of the kindest guys I ever met. And he was very, very, I was the leader of the band. He was very, very nice to me. And, you know, Phil's parents were from Trinidad. Where was it? Uh, somewhere in the Caribbean. Excuse me, I forget that where exactly where. And uh, my bass there, his parents were from Trinidad. So it was we the only two um, black bass players in ireland so it was what are the chances of that <laughs> yeah so they you know they found that very amusing and they, they loved it you know and uh, then we used to go around ireland pretending that we were thin lizzie and people didn't know some people you know there weren't it sounds ridiculous but not that many people watched tv back then so it was like there are parts of the country that we were the souls coming and they just accepted that it was Tin Lizzy. Now they'd figure it out eventually. We had a lot of fun, and uh, but it was a great experience for a young person. And I think the most, the biggest takeaway I got was from Thin Lizzy was treat other musicians right along your journey because they treated me fantastic and my two band members. Yeah, I remember that there was a one passage in the book where you'd mentioned that there was, let's just say, some disagreement between. Thin Lizzy's management and yourselves around payment yeah. and Phil Linnett took the money out of his own pocket to pay you, uh, which I yep. thought was just a measure of a man, right? Not just that, but then after he paid me, he um, took me downtown for a drink, you know, so you say to yourself, well, that's no big deal. It was a huge deal. He was a mega rock star at the time and I was nothing. And he insisted that he take me down because he felt so bad for me. And uh, so going downtown Galway on Saturday morning, and all my peers looking at me said, that's Jamie Kelleher with Phil Linnett from Dun Lizzie. What's he doing with it? You know, so it was uh, it was just a kindness I'll never forget. And I kind of use it as a, 
a, a guide the way I treat people. Hopefully, I treat people well. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, back to the book, Shine a Light. I mean, what a beautifully written book. What a, a raw and honest and necessary book for, for folks. And I, I say it's necessary because apart from, you know, somebody like me that loves Irish music history, of which there was plenty of it, right? There was also a very authentic, raw account for the darker side of the rock and roll lifestyle. And that could be, you know, addiction issues that can be depression and trying to, you know, the world sees you as you have it all. You're walking down the street with the, with, you know, Phil Linnett, but then behind the scenes, you might be just dealing with something internally. So I know it's a cliche that says music saved my life, but I really do think in your case, reading that book, that's a very true statement. So how, does music and mental health go hand in hand for you? Because it seems like it's just a hand in glove thing. So explain to the listeners how those two sit with you. Yeah, let me start that answer by just quoting from one of my own diaries from when I was about 14 or 15 years of age. It says um, on the very last page of this, this would be 1972 or three, whatever, it says, I have to stop fighting my music and accept that I'll be doing this for the rest of my life. So um, what had happened was music had become such an obsession with me. I wasn't doing anything else. I wasn't interacting socially with people. I wasn't doing the things that people would do normally with families and stuff like that. I became very isolated. That was the bad part, right? But there was another side to that. For the first time, I was a very quiet kid, very insecure. Uh, I'd been abused in school, not, not sexually, but physically. Um, Ireland was in a tough time at that time. And uh, with the sectarian violence that was going on during the Troubles. And what music did for me, it pulled me out of it. You know, got me through it, Mike. It, and I don't know why I can't give a clinical definition of why I did or anything like that. But it was like from, I'd say the day, especially the day I picked up the electric guitar, it was like a blood transfusion went into me and I got good at it pretty quickly. And it was the first time I was ever good at anything, at least in my own mind. And um, it's, it felt like, I pick up the guitar and I do a few riffs and literally it felt like someone was going through my veins. And, um, you know, I guess it's like a drug of sorts. So that, you know, it, it took several years for me to come to grips. So how do you manage something that powerful in your life that could destroy you, you know, if you took you the wrong way? And But how do you kind of maximize the potential? And throughout my life, I get that's been the um, that's been the battle. There were times it put me in a bad place, but there were times, many times, when it pulled me out. And I'd say more times that it pulled me out of a bad place than not, you know. And uh, music has been great for me in the scale of a, a sixty-eight-year-old life so far, and it's been my joy. And I still get the same thrill that I got from that that day when I was fifteen when I picked up that electric guitar. If, if I just picked up my guitar now, that's exactly the same vibe I get. I can't wait to go to work tonight. I'm 68. That's you know? amazing. That's amazing. Well, let's talk about the present day. 
what was it like to share the stage with your son? Because I know you did a recent gig with him. Yeah, it was um, it was extraordinary. It was on St. Patrick's Day. And the, the night before, he asked me, "Could Dad, can I jam with you? And I was like, I was shocked. Now, he's a great musician, a great piano player, and a really good guitar player. But I never really heard him play guitar, you know, because he'd do it in his room. And even though he wants to make music his career, he's kind of a late bloomer in terms of performing uh, live. But um, so I said, sure, but there was no time to rehearse because I was I had gigs all day St. Patrick's Day. And he came to the show and I thought he was going to bail. And he told me he wanted to do Purple Rain and uh, Hey Joe, <laughs> hey, hey, hey Joe from uh, Jimi Hendrix. And he came up and he nailed both songs. He was great. Wow. Um, Purple Rain's not an easy one either. No, no. And I said, oh, sure, you just don't want to pick a simple blues song to do. And he said, no, I want to do Purple Rain. Now, did you do, did you do the falsetto like? No, no, no. Come on, you didn't? No, I, that's not in me. Did you go out with the purple sh the purple coat and the, and the knickers? None of that either? No, no, no. I don't <laughs> like where this is going. Right. I don't like the images, the images are disturbing. <laughs> They're disturbing me. I should get off this train right now. Yeah, yeah. But it was it was a wonderful it was a wonderful moment. And um uh, you know, he's just he's a he's a great talent, so I hope he finds his way. You know, I, I make care to let him know that. The good and bad of the music that it's you know i wouldn't try and change it for a million dollars but it's probably one of the most difficult career paths you can take you know it sure is it sure is and i think you know again the book uh just in the spirit of full disclosure i came out with my own book the same day you came out with yours and i did a book tour and you did a book tour but the highlight of my book tour was when we did one together and we did a rock and read which we've done for so many years, you know, I've been the, the guy that provided the reading and you were the one that provided the rocking. We've done book tours together in the past. And I can't tell you what a joy it was to actually have you be the reader and the rocker. And uh, it just was so great to, to watch the book get birthed. And I can tell you from my own friendship circle, people have commented to me and I'm sure they've gotten over, back over to you that the book really made a difference for them. The book really made it safe for them to talk about uh, their own troubles. I think also I, I wanna make sure that uh, we couch this correctly. You've got some very, very funny stories in the book as well. Uh, so it's uh, it, that's why I think it's so masterfully done. Uh, it is definitely a book that makes you think, that makes you reflect, makes you laugh out loud. Uh, and uh, it's just been, it's been great. So what has been the response on the book tour uh, of your own Rock and Read? Because you've been selling them at gigs and, and been doing some personal appearances. So what's it like to get that sort of feedback from, from the readership, never mind the listeners? Yeah, your timing is very good because I'm at the point where uh, I, I sell most of the books at shows that I do all over the country, right? And I'm kind of on my second around to the, all the venues that I would have visited, let's say, when the book came out. And uh, so most of them now are coming to the show, so they've read the book. You know, the first time around, I gave them the book and told them about it, but they wouldn't have read it, obviously. But this time around, they've read it. So that's just fascinating. People are coming back to me, asking me questions, very probing questions. And But the, the most joyous part of it is people coming back saying, 
that it either helped them or it helped somebody else that they gave the book to somebody else to read. Or they'd ask me, people buy multiple copies and they say, I have friends that need to read this book. And that was always my hope. You know, when I wrote the book first, it was just meant to be a kind of, and Mike, you were instrumental in getting me to write this book, getting me to get my story on, on, um, on paper. And initially it was really about um, my crazy life in music because I've had a wonderful career. You know, I've been playing for um, professionally for over 50 years. That's crazy. And um, I played all over the world. I played Carnegie Hall, Lincoln Center, um, many festivals, uh, 8,000 8, shows. But I've, you know, suffered depression, bad depression. I was hospitalized when I was 20. And I had to deal with depression all my life and um, alcohol addiction much later in life, ironically. But it's not like they define me. I still had, you know, some happy times during the, when I was, you know, bad off with the alcohol. It just got a hold of me and started to ruin my life. The depression just came and went and I got better at recognizing the signs. And that's what the book is all about, by the way. I got better at recognizing the signs and taking action to make a change. So getting back to your question, but that's what people recognize in the book, that there is always hope as long as you have it. But you have to make a change yourself and you have to reach out for help. You know, if you're struggling with major depression or addiction, the chances are maybe one in a hundred that you can do it on your own, that you can get back on track. And that might be a generous uh, statistic. Um, but if you're willing to reach out and get help, if you're suffering from depression, there's a 90% chance you're going to recover. Uh, and it's probably much higher. And that uh, same with addiction. And uh, probably the statistics are probably not as high for addiction, sadly. But the, my point is, there is help out there. People need to reach out and get help. And every day you put your foot in the ground out of bed is an opportunity to turn your life around if you're in a bad place. That's, that's a big message. And that's what my audience members are coming back and saying to me. And they appreciate that. So, you know, I don't know if I expected to sell it I chose in the first place, but to have the response. And, and even on Amazon, I get the same response, but it's pretty cool. That's amazing. That's amazing. And what's particularly amazing about that is what you just said, said in an Irish accent, is that much more remarkable because in our Irish culture, what you just said is not something that's often talked about. It's, it's brushed under the rug or snap out of it, those kinds of things. And I'm not saying that as a knock against, you know, a previous generation or whatnot, but so much of what the Irish have gone through has gone undiagnosed and kept secretive. There's certainly depression in my own family that has just recently been unearthed, which then for your generation and the one below you, that starts to go, oh, okay, so that makes sense if this person was suffering the same as you know other people in the family there's there's definitely a pattern here so i just again i've said this to you privately and i'll say this to you officially on the taste podcast i so admire your 
authenticity and your bravery to just say the things that many families still don't feel comfortable saying to one another. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate that. And thanks for the forum to kind of, I love every opportunity I have to reiterate that message. You know, there's three things. I don't know how many years I'm going to be. I'm sober eight years. Uh, so I don't know how many years I've got left. I hope I have many, many years, right? I, I have several albums in my head that I want to do. But there's three things I want to focus on uh, for the rest of my life, in addition to my music. Number one, I want to be, I want to help people who are struggling, right? Just directly, which I do, who people reach out to me all the time. Number two, I want to be an advocate for people who are struggling, right? An advocate politically in terms of raising awareness with politicians, but getting more funding for mental health, which is a disgrace in this country and many other countries. Um, and, and third, and probably the most important, I want to normalize the conversation about mental health and addiction. In other words, you know, if you go out with a bunch of people, I was out with a bunch of people last night, and if I said, oh, if, let's say I came and my elbow was in a sling, everybody would be like, Shams, are you okay? What's wrong? Can I get you coffee? Can I get you this? Can I move your chair for you? You know, that'd be great. But let's say if I was there sitting off to the side, and really sad. Um, nobody's going to say a question because they'd be afraid to ask. Nobody would say, "No, that, I don't understand that." Be afraid to ask me because obviously there's something going on. But even my wife or something like that, they're afraid to ask. Is Seamus okay? Because right. that's the elephant in the room, you know. You don't ask a question about mental health even around the dinner table. And my, when people see me talking about mental health, they say, "You seem so normal." You know, and I said, it is a normal conversation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Your brain, if something goes wrong with your brain, fix it. You know, it it, it can be fixed. And uh, I said, it's no different than your shoulder. It's just that something's not kind of quite right up there. And it might mean a bit of therapy. It might mean um, uh, some meds. It might, if you're really bad, it might mean a trip to the hospital for a few days. But you know what? It's just an illness. And uh, if you start calling it something else and you know so i'm very conscious i call it mental wellness most of the time because that kind of normalizes this because we talk about physical wellness so i'm working on my physical wellness as i'm great how many people you hear say well you know last year was a rough year for me i'm working on my mental health you know that people don't don't talk about it like that but when i talk around the country i do motivational talks about this and that's my message. Talk about this stuff. And I'm not saying you go into bars and that's the first thing you talk about. But don't uh, make it the elephant in the room. You know, if, you, if, if, if your family knows if you're struggling. Uh, so talk about it and figure out a way to get help. And um, But don't just put it off to the back burner because, it's, like I said, 99% of the time, it's not going to go away on its own. And we'll be right back. Taste is sponsored by Career Letters. We're in the midst of the great resignation, which means people are leaving their jobs in record numbers. That's great news for job seekers, yet most people aren't prepared to meet the moment of opportunity with the current state of their resume and LinkedIn profile. If you are looking to make a career change, we craft customized resumes and LinkedIn profiles that get you noticed in this digital landscape. For more information, including a blog that covers up-to-date hiring trends and interview tips, visit careerletters.com 
or like Career Letters LinkedIn page, careerletters.com. And we're back with the great Seamus Kelleher. We've talked about books. We've talked about rock and roll life. Let's talk about what you've got coming up because you've got some great things coming up. The first one is the new album, right? Shine the light on me tonight. And I've heard some of it and it's just barn burning. So tell us, paint the picture of what this album is like and how it's different from the other ones you've released. Well, I love you set this up and we didn't plan this, Mike, but you just set it up, paint the picture. That's what I was doing with this album. I never saw it as a collection of songs. I saw it as a piece of art and that's gonna sound really weird, but I wanted all these different colors and textures in it. In the past, I'd go into the studio, I have a, a band with me and we do each track and, you know, different instruments and that, that, that was it. You'd mix it and you'd be done. This was very different. I'd go into the studio and I'd, you know, put on my guitar part and then I'd say to the producer, I want this kind of a sound. And I kind of, like you said, I paint a picture of what I wanted to, like a blue sky. There was one song in particular, it's called Song for Summer. And I said, I want thunder and lightning at the beginning. And what was a joy working with this young producer, he said, that sounds great, Seamus, let's try it. And he put the thunder and lightning at the beginning of the song. And it was exact, every time that comes on the, uh, and I play the music, it brings this image of uh, an Irish summer and one of those wonderful um, thunderstorms. You've seen that, Mike, many times over there. And you get the rainbows and all that. That's exactly the image I want to capture. So I just have to give you one example, but that was throughout um, the entire album. So it's really kind of wow. kaleidoscope of pictures and, uh, and it's, it, it flows from every song to every song. So I'm, I'm very proud of it. It's, it's, I took a lot of risks with this album. I stretched myself to the very, very limit. And um, I think I accomplished what I wanted to accomplish and based on the, the feedback so far. Yeah, and guitar playing wise, the same thing. I wasn't trying to play the best guitar solo in the world, but I wanted to create these images with my guitar playing. And so there's every style from um, almost classical to um, rock and, you know, the touch of the Hendrix there and Carlos Santana, but not not trying to imitate anybody. It was just, uh, once again, I was focused on the pictures and, uh, you know, the producer was just with this young man, Daniel Kerrigan from Doylestown, PA, and just, he's probably only 30. I think that's what, that's what was really good to do it with a young person who kind of gave it, he had no restrictions on, on himself. You know, he just gave it, he kind of took my lens and he kind of just expanded it. Yeah, that's kind of a good way of saying it. So I, I'm, I'm delighted to, uh, to have it out and it feels a relief to, to have it on my, it's like doing a book, right? When, you, when you're finished, you almost don't want to see it again for a while, but right. By the same token, when you pick it, get it, I have it in my hand next Wednesday. When I get it in my hand, I know it's going to be that same feeling I got with Shine the Light. Yeah, yeah. And it's really great. I, again, I, I did hear a couple of tracks on it. And what I've noticed is, you know, you and I have known each other for decades, right? And in fact, when I think I first met you, 
was right around the time you were doing the Rory Gallagher tribute in New York City. That would probably be right around the time we met. So you were very heavily influenced by the blues and Rory Gallagher. I know he's a hero of yours, but you were, shows have been really a mixture of, again, classical and blues guitar and flamenco. So it sounds like the experience of your show has been transported onto this album. Yeah, this is the album I always wanted to make. Uh, I've done, I think when I was with the Irish band Blackthorn, I did uh, four or five albums, and then I've done two solo albums. And over the years, probably 20 other albums with people. But this is me. This is exactly who I am uh, on this album. I think every track represents an element of who I am. And, um, you know, it's, that's a great feeling. I, I, can't, I, I won't say that I always felt that with previous records. And I'm, I'm fighting nothing. Could I have done things better? You know, you always like, the, you know, Mike, when you finish your, your books, I'm sure you're saying, ah, I could have written this a bit better. I could have done that. I know I did with China Light. Um, but with this, I'm sure that I, I, there will come a day when I'll say I should have done this better. But it's, it's me at my uh, stretch to my very limit and experimenting. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, once again, at age 68, to be uh, to have that approach and that it, it's a very optimistic album mike to, uh, going back once again to your original question um it took me a while to get there it's a very optimistic and forward-looking album and somebody said how would you describe it and i said joyous you know that's great the last yeah the last track is called thank you for the music and uh, i remember when i heard the final mix of it i started crying in a good way. Tears of joy. Yeah. You've certainly given joy to so many of us and your shows and your albums. And I love the fact that you also share your homeland with people. So as this is a food and culture and music podcast, let's talk a little bit about the food. So you're going to be bringing a group of people over to Ireland starting on June 9th, Galway, Kerry in Dublin, where does Seamus Kelleher go in those towns to get the best feed going? And what are some of the highlights food-wise that you see uh, on your travels over to Ireland when you go? And then also, uh, is there any place on this side of the Atlantic where that's your go-to place for uh, a good Irish feed and, and what's usually on your plate when you get it? Yeah. Um... So Mike, it's very interesting. Like growing up, and it's in my book, I was a terrible eater. I only ate like Irish sausages and French fries and beans and toast. That's all I ate. And maybe brown bread. Thankfully, I've come a long way. <laughs> and um, so, but when people, nowadays, when I go to, uh, for an Irish breakfast, let's say, you know, which is my favorite. And uh, we've been doing lots of that on the bus trip. I, I love the um, Irish sausages, the scrambled eggs. You can have your eggs anyway at all. The bacon, the brown bread. And um, now they have the, what they call the blood pudding, blood pudding, which is not everybody's cup of tea. It's like a sausage type of meat. But I, so I'll leave that to your listeners to decide if they want to indulge. The Irish breakfast, I look forward to the folks in Ireland on the bus tour having that because that can sustain you all day, right? Sure. I also have people... 
have take advantage of that breakfast because that kind of can become an early lunch for you and allows you to do lots of different things. But what I want people to experience in Galway, like there's loads of fish restaurants in Galway because it's a harbour town. And people that love fish, there's a place in Galway called McDonald's right on Key Street. And it's known worldwide for their fish because they're literally $500, 500 um, yards from the docks. And they do a great job. And then in Dingle, where I'm going to be taking my tour, there's a whole circuit of restaurants right on the waterfront. And they're all kind of world-famous restaurants. So famous for not just for their seafood, but just their culinary expertise. Because, uh, you know, I'm not a big seafood eater, but I, I, when I go into those restaurants, I find, I find myself being able to experiment. And, and they take Irish ingredients, and what they, but what they do with it is just amazing. So I would encourage anybody. There was a time... And uh, Mike, you might remember when you were very, very young, when we wouldn't be talking about Irish food. It'd be the last thing we would talk about. That's the whole purpose of this podcast, by the way, because there's this image of Irish food being a certain way. I remember in, in my lifetime in Galway going in and I ordered a ham and cheese sandwich and they said, we don't do that. We can give you a ham sandwich. We can give you a cheese sandwich, but we yeah. can't put them together. So I got a plate of... Ham sandwiches and a ham plate of cheese sandwiches, and I had to stack yeah. them together. It was like, what yeah, the and, hell? and if you got it, it was two tiny slices of bread and a tiny yeah. slice and a little and a little buffer. <laughs> but, but like Ireland has changed, like everything else in Ireland has changed. And what what happened was years ago they set up these colleges of technologies for all the young people in the four provinces of Ireland had these studied culinary expertise. Many of them went away abroad on internships and all that worked in fancy restaurants, did very, very well, came back to Ireland and set up their own restaurants. That was the beginning of the Renaissance and that started happening in the early 80s. So now it's 40 years hence and it's um, it's one of, the, you know, Ireland is one of the culinary capitals of Europe, of the world, I think. You go into these small little towns, there's another town, Kinsale, not far, it's, that's in Cork. And they've got these four, five-star restaurants. It's crazy, you know? Crazy. And it's funny you should bring up... Um... Dingle because to this day one of the best meals I've ever had and it was so simple it was broiled salmon with a twice baked potato and the salmon to your point was caught 500 yards from the restaurant that the the bay was actually lapping against the wall of yeah. the re of the pier that the restaurant was on right so I mean you can't it was literally you look down and there's the water right so I think to your point, it was just simple, the freshest salmon imaginable with a little bit of garnish and a little bit of lemon and, and just simple vegetables, but simple yeah. that were so evocative of the culture. And this yeah. is, this is a meal I might've had 30 years ago, but damn, if I don't, I can't see it, taste it. And to this day, when everybody says, what's the best meal you ever had, it's, it's in Dingle, so I would. Yeah, yeah, and I, I would say the same, Mike, with, I had the similar experience at a restaurant called the Mustard Seed and Adair, and I, I, they gave me a soup, it was mustard seed soup, and once again, I wasn't a big, back then, I've gotten much better with my, my uh, culinary taste, but back then, I still was just experimenting with food and enjoying it, but the, when I tasted the soup, I said to my wife, Mary Beth, I said, oh, you know. I tried the second bite. It was the best soup I ever had in my life, you know? 
and um, the restaurant, everything about the restaurant was amazing. But my point is, when when my message to people going to Ireland is, try all the restaurants. It doesn't have to be the four or five star restaurants. Even the little mom and pop places around the country, um, and you know, not every time you're going to be successful, but they they have an enormous pride in their food, and there's so much competition. It has to be at a certain standard. But that's the beauty about Ireland, you know, uh, for a foodie, for people that enjoy this experiment and have at it, and don't be afraid to ask for different things because people want to oblige. And and then one of the funnest things I do, um, I don't like to eat during a day. I, I just I never have. Like and you have to have something. And in my long days over there touring, and I stop for a soup, soup and brown bread, and that is you can any bar, any restaurant. Uh, during the day, you can win there. You don't have to be drinking beer. You don't have to be doing any whatever. You can take kids in. That's, it's kid-friendly during the day, all those bars. And the soup is to die for, you know. And they'll always have your standard vegetable soup. But most of the time, they'll have something that you probably wouldn't expect, like a, a mustard seed or something else. So I, I, that, that, that's one of my joys as a tourist when I go over there is to just go into town, walk around, go into say, I'm going to try this restaurant today, try their soup. That's that's kind of it for me. And speaking about finding soup and finding other things, tell us how we can find you. Websites, Facebook pages? I think that the best thing is um, my website, shamelessk.com. So let me just spell that. S-E-A-M-U-S-K.com. And that's pretty much got links to everything on it and just google Seamus Kelleher I show up everywhere and uh, you know the the, song, the music will be available on what they call bandcamp.com that's B-A-N-D-C-A-M-P uh, bandcamp.com and the new album Shine the Light on Me Tonight will be available on that and uh, it'll be on streaming services in a month or so that's great that's great well Seamus it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Our friendship built over decades is just among my most treasured things. And it's just so, so proud of you. So proud of, again, your mission, your purpose-driven entertainment. Again, it is a rollicking time at a bar when Seamus plays. And to watch you, you know, speak uh, during the book signings has been, you know, extremely inspirational to me. And I'm sure I'm not alone in saying that. So it's just been a pleasure, as always, to talk to you. Well, Mike, th- th- thank you. You know, I, I don't know if you fully realize the ins- how you inspired me to write a book because there was so many times I was about to give up. I said, I can't do this. And you kept at me, but not in an antagonistic way, but just in a supportive way. I said, Seamus, you have it to do this. And you gave me little just hints along the way. I know you did it for many others as well. But I've said it. I think I said it at the back of the book. I said, it, it, the book wouldn't exist for you if it weren't for your kind of um, mentorship and showing me the way. And I'm, I'm forever grateful. And yeah, I'm thankful for you just selfishly, but I'm more thankful that you allowed me to tell my story that's going to help others. So that's what I'm really thankful for. And um, because, you know, we have a great friendship, you would do that for me anywhere. But you did more than that. You allowed me to give people a voice that don't have a voice. And that's that's the most important outcome of my, maybe our relationship all the way. I treasure it on so many levels. If we've been able to do that together, we've created something that will last long after I'm gone. 
we also know where each other's buried the bodies, so we have to stay on each other's good side as well. Yeah, yeah, no, there's, <laughs> there's another there's, there's another book already written, but won't be, re- won't, won't be released until about me six foot under. <laughs> until, we're, until we're both dead. All right, Seamus, you take care. <laughs> Thanks so much. All right. Taste has been produced by Brain on Shamrocks Productions through an exclusive partnership with irishcentral.com. It's been mixed and engineered by Barbara Farraher, the smiling voice, and my wife. I love you, honey. You can follow us on Instagram at Taste Podcast, and that's T-A-Y-S-H-T Podcast, or at Brain on Shamrocks. We'll see you next week.